Welcome to the RBT mini-series presented by the BT Focus podcast. As we walk you step-by-step through the second edition RBT task list on your path to certification and elevating your practice. All right, welcome back to the BT Focus podcast. My name is Dan. I'm joined by Victoria. Hello, thanks for having me, Dan. I'm glad that we are going to do this again. Again, yeah, technically, um, it's thanks to Brian. He is continuing (laughs) to let us take the reins on this one. And happy October 1st. Yes, it finally feels like fall here in Michigan. The trees are starting to change colors and it's a little bit crisp outside. You can leave the windows open without having to turn on air conditioning. So it's, we're getting there. Yeah, here in Texas, uh, it we definitely hit like a fall season that lasted less than a week. And now we're definitely back to summer. We had a fake fall, um, <laughs> as we call it. But um, a storm just blew in last night, and it's back to cold. So I'm happy. So when you <laughs> say cold, the bank. <laughs> eighty. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Exactly, exactly. Like we're used to, we're used to like ninety-eight and hundred and seven here. Uh, so when it's like eighty degrees, I'm like, let me get out my sweaters and my jackets. Like I'm ready to go out <laughs> and feel fall. Uh, but yeah, it's completely different. I originally was from Indiana. I think I mentioned it in the podcast last time. And the cold weather there is is nowhere near compared to the cold weather here in Texas. I mean, there was, I think back in 2018, you guys had those like negative 50 degree weather in the winter. Yeah, everything shut down. Yeah, it was absolutely crazy. Uh, so weather is definitely uh, a topic of interest for Americans in general, as, as one of my me- Mexican friends told me. Um, but we're here actually today to talk about implementing discrete trial teaching procedures. We're going through our RBT task list. We are on C4 right now. Now, this had been touched on previously by Brian in the podcast back in July, where he had walked through the several pro tips, and there was four specific parts. So we're just going to briefly go through snippets of each of those parts. And one of the things that we want to do is kind of give you guys this perspective from a behavior technician point of view. So we're going to touch on each of those as Brian had touched on those, but we're going to play this juxtaposition of what worked and what didn't work for each of us. So Specifically, we know discrete trial training teaching is most commonly used by paraprofessionals, behavior technicians, RBT. And what we're doing here is we're applying that behavioral analysis. We're using direct instruction and reinforcement to generate contingencies that shape new acquisition skills. So what do you think the goal of DTT is? So the goal of DTT is going to make sure that we are able to break down um, these learning processes into smaller steps so that we're able to teach them in a way that the clients are able to digest them a little bit better than just saying, hey, here's this big thing that we need you to know. Um, Let's figure it out and learn it. We have these very uh, masterfully created steps that we can utilize to present to the client and then teach them these skills little by little, right? We're not going to teach them the entire color of the rainbow at one time. We're going to break it down into different targets for them to learn each color at a time. 
Yes, and it's really important that we do that because we're really individualized and focusing on a skill set that we want our clients to master. And by breaking it down into those small steps, it's easily digestible, easily learned, and most likely your client will be able to generalize those in a manner that's more efficient than, say, how you and I were taught in school. I know when I was in school, specifically, uh, a subject that would really frustrate me was algebra, which I think gets a lot of us. And I think one of the most frustrating parts was that there was these ambiguous or arbitrary ideas behind algebra. And I just remember I would be working, I was like in eighth grade, I'd be working through my algebra work and I just wasn't getting it. So my dad would prompt me to go to the board. My dad was my math teacher. Uh, He would prompt me to go to the board and he would have me write down step by step what that looked like. And he would have me say, what's the next step? And I missed lunches because I didn't know what the next step was. And my dad was having to like prompt me through them. But to be honest, after that grade, I fell in love with algebra. And it was because my father did a really good job of breaking down each of those steps in that specific math problem where it made sense to me. Compared to in the book, sometimes you see that finished product and you're like, oh yeah, that that doesn't look that, that hard. And then you get to it and you're trying to break it down. You're like, it's a lot harder than you think. Um, I know I'm working right now on some social programs with with one of my clients, and I don't think we understand how complicated they are until yeah. we get to and break them down. Um, could you give me an example of a complicated social program that you know? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of components that go into the social skills programs that we teach our clients. You don't really know what it's like to interact and keep a conversation going, right? Um, Until you're actually doing the program with the client and you're like, wow, yeah, I guess we have all of these things we need to consider. Yeah, I once worked with a client and we were teaching those basic skills of continuing a conversation. And you kind of realize your faults as well, right? And like your natural environment, because it was like, okay, like there has to be so many responses of back and forth and you're like sometimes you're like oh wait like when I'm with my friends do I do I ask this as many times as we're teaching (laughs) these clients am I needing to learn some of these skills right (laughs) so it can be difficult because you're you're examining also like your behavior and how you interact with people and then taking those interactions and being able to say okay yeah I guess I would make this facial expression when I'm conveying this emotion and I would um, ask this question for this response. And so then we can better help our clients in understanding how they need to respond or ask questions to keep a conversation going, right? Completely. I, I agree with you. And one of the examples that I have here is I'm teaching a sarcasm program right now. And it's a difficult uh, program to teach like sarcasm can can vary dramatically between individuals and um so of course we have like that clear idea of what sarcasm is like oh I really don't want to be here today right and you know like you're being sarcastic there um but one of the things that we really try to do when we're running DTT is like we had mentioned before we really try to break them down the step by step so we're really looking at each of those steps. We're dissecting them so we know exactly where we see a skill deficit or what we need to work on. And we usually do this 
especially if it's like a task and, or it's a complicated DTT program, um, we do it step by step. So we're either doing forward or backward chaining. Could you give me an example of a forward or backward chaining program that you've worked with in the past? Yeah, so hand washing is a really big one um, where we use backwards chaining. I find that that is the best process to use when teaching a really um, teaching a program where there's multiple steps to be learned. So hand washing, as we know, it can be like a three step program or it could be a 15 step program, depending on how much the clinician is going to break it down for that to be taught to that client. And of course, that's going to vary from client to client, depending on the skills that they have and the skills that they need to acquire. Right. So for hand washing, if you're using backwards chaining, we're only going to focus on teaching that last step first. So step, say it's a 10 step program, steps one through nine, we're hand over hand prompting until we get to step 10. We may start with hand over hand prompts and the next time we wash hands, we're going to prompt fade to maybe partial physical or gestural prompts and so forth until that step is mastered. Now, once that step is mastered, they always get to do that independently. So now we're going to work on step nine. So we're going to do steps one through eight, hand over hand prompting, prompt fading on step nine, and then they complete step 10 on their own. And we continue that until they learn the entire chain. The reason that I say I really like using backwards chaining the most when you have a large number of steps is because once you get to maybe step five, they have done steps one through five only the correct way, probably hundreds of times at this point right? Because you're hand over hand prompting. So at this point, they're going to catch on to steps one through five really quickly. And we have to be aware of that so we can prompt bait even quicker than we did for the last five steps. Um, but it's a really great way for them to memorize the process. One step comes next step, the next step, kind of like you're talking about with algebra versus if you have to complete the whole step in forward chaining, and then you can only move on to knowing the next step, right? Or doing it yourself, if you mastered step one, right? Whereas with backwards chaining, you get to see the whole chain play out and then you get to try it on your own. Beautifully said. And one of the things that we're really looking at is not only breaking up each of these steps into small learnable uh, parts, but we're also looking at trying to do it in a manner that will get them to learn that skill the quickest or focus on getting that skill acquired so that we can move on to another program, or as you had mentioned, move on to another step. And I love how you outlined this as well, Victoria, because you're completely right. Like going through those steps at the beginning and teaching that last step and backward training, you do go over those hundreds of times sometimes. And then when you get there, you're right. You can prompt fade even quicker compared to the step after that. And I know a lot of the times when I'm in my trainings, behavior technicians find that concept really difficult. And I know I found that really difficult when yeah. I first started as well, and I was completely prompting wrong. So you outlined that perfectly, and it made perfect sense to me. Now, let's get to our five steps of DTT. Like I said, these are just going to be quick, bite-sizable pieces of what you've already learned back in uh, that July podcast where Brian and I had broke it down for you in way more in-depth detail. So here, the first step in our five steps of DTT is that discriminative stimulus. So this is a concise, clear instruction directing the individual to the current program you are working on. This facilitates the individual to associate between the correct response and a particular action or direction. Now, what do we want to do before we present that SD? 
Yeah, so we want to make sure we establish some form of joint attention or eye contact. The, the reason we say joint attention or eye contact is because sometimes eye contact is uncomfortable for some of our clients. So we're not going to force them to stare us in the face because, you know, honestly, when I'm talking to somebody and I'm nervous or learning something new, I may look off into a direction for a second and then come back and look at you in that face, right, in the eyes. So joint attention can also mean just looking in your direction, knowing that you have their attention before you present the SD. Because if I just start giving direction, they could think I'm talking to Johnny over in the corner, right, and not at them when I'm asking them to um, do a certain task during DTT. Exactly. Uh, and after SD, we want to wait three to five seconds before initiating the prompting sequence. And then, and then during DTT, what do we want to do? We want to avoid looking or moving towards the correct response because, again, if they have that joint attention or can follow your eye gaze and you're looking at the correct card, then they can also look at the correct card and choose the correct answer. And at this point, was it because you looked at it or is it because they knew the answer? Right. So we have to be very careful that we're not looking at the correct response either. And we're also mixing up those materials in between trials, because if we always put the correct answer in the middle, which I think most of us tend to do, um, then the client will catch on to that very quickly. They will start just picking whatever you put in the middle. They'll no longer scan the array or look for any other option. Um, so be careful to always put the correct answer in the middle, then the right side, the left side, and mix it up so that it's they're not just choosing a position, but they're actually looking for the correct answer. Yes, great explanation there. Now, what worked or didn't work for you in this step when we present the SD? Yeah, so when presenting the SD, I think I've definitely um, said like, all right, let's go do this, right? Or please do this, right? Um, and <laughs> I maybe didn't have their joint attention. So my client will still be just kind of like looking around. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I better make it clear. I'm talking to you, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, great example of what didn't work. A lot of the times I do that as well. Like I'm so focused on ready to m move on with the DTT that I'm already on the train and my client is still standing at the train station. Like, okay, all right, I guess see you later. And I'm like, no, no, you're on this deep, you're on this DTT trial with me. Uh, now, what did work for me in this step? Really focused on like preparing everything in advance and making sure that I had carved out a niche wherever I was performing DTT. Um, and most of the time what that looked like was a little table or a mat or a little area that I could be working at. Um, the majority of the time, whenever I was running DTT so that my client would also associate, okay, when I'm in this position or I'm in this spot in the house or the center, I'm going to be doing DTT. So really setting up that, that setting and the environment helped me a lot with my client um, to gain like, for both of us, this knowledge and understanding that, all right, DTT is about to happen, so I need to be present and ready because also during DTT, we get that reinforcement. Um, so we always wanna make sure that that reinforcement is available as well. Now, you had mentioned as well, like your, your client not attending to you and you know, like, okay, where are you going? I'm talking to you. What about stating the client's name? I know Brian had mentioned this before yeah. and there was actually some um, varying, ideas about this in the former podcast, but what do you think? 
Yeah, I love talking about this. So whenever you're seeing the SD, it's always going to be written in your program instructions in Care Connect on the iPad that you're using. So we want to make sure that when we're stating the SD after gaining that joint attention, we're only saying the instruction. We are not using the client's name paired with the instruction. There's two reasons. Number one is because we don't want to associate the client's name with work all the time, right? If every time I said, hey, Dan, I need you to, hey, Dan, I need you to, hey, Dan, you're not going to want to hear your name anymore, <laughs> right? Because you're going to be like, oh yeah. my gosh, every time they say my name, they need something from me, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's that's aversive. We don't want to we don't want to pair the client's name with work always. But then additionally, we want these skills to generalize. We always say like, if we are only able to do the skill with the client during um, ABA therapy, and it's not being generalized across environments, across people eventually, then there's really no point in doing this skill, right? Because if they can only do it with us and they can only um, get the correct response with us, then the skill is not going to generalize well across other people and environments. So we're really working towards that generalization in the end. So if we're always saying their name when we give an instruction, they eventually assume that if somebody's talking to them, they're going to utilize their name, right? So this means at school, everybody would have to use their name. At the grocery store, the cashier at the grocery store, I was going to say Kroger, that's what we have in Michigan, um, is would use their name when telling them their total. And that's not the case. So they have to be able to generalize these skills amongst different people and environments. So by us always using their name, we're really doing them a disservice um, by pairing their name with that instruction. Yeah, because when I'm out on the street, my name is Hey, or my name is Excuse Me, right? right? Especially if, the, if they're talking to me and I, I catch a gesture, I catch like they are talking to me and I realize, oh yeah, they're, they're speaking to me. Um, and if I hadn't generalized those skills of like, hey, I'm talking to you through, hey, excuse me, um, then I'm just going to completely move on. And sometimes it could be a safety issue as well. Yes. You know, like, hey, we don't want you to walk in this area because it's dangerous. Or, hey, I need you to stop. There's a crane above your head that's lifting some cement on, onto a building. And it's like, hey, you need to move around, right? So we want to make sure that we're definitely not pairing their name with with work. That's definitely going to become adversive, as you stated, like, hey, Victoria, hey, Victoria, hey, Victoria, right? You're going to be like, all right, calm down, like, right. go away. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why you keep saying my name over and over again. Um, whenever we're working. And then as well as, yeah, like you had said, we want to generalize it. Now, let's move on to the prompt. So this is the second step. So that first step, we had that scrimmage stimulus. The second step in our DTT is going to be that prompt. Following an incorrect response, we, the paraprofessionals, will implement the prompting sequence. What do we adhere to as a standard at Centria? Yeah, so we're always going to adhere to least to most prompting unless otherwise noted in your program instructions or um, explicitly told to you by the supervising clinician because this allows for the most independent response, right? If we are giving SD, and then we give some verbal prompts and we wait three to five seconds. And then we give a gestural prompt and we wait three to five seconds. And then a partial physical prompt and we wait three to five seconds. And then finally a full physical prompt and we do it with the client. Whereas on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have airless teaching where it's most to least. And we start with that full physical or hand over hand prompting. Now that is needed in certain cases, and that's okay, but we always want to prompt fade as soon as possible so the client doesn't become prompt dependent, right? Because when you have a prompt dependent client, what this looks like is you're going to say, pick red. They're going to sit there. 
and they're going to look at you and you guys are going to have a staring contest, right? So instead of you guys having to uh, stare it out, what you're going to do is prompt bait as soon as possible so that, okay, maybe I need to use a full physical prompt, but next time I present this trial, I'm going to test out a partial physical prompt. I'm going to see, can we get the, can you get the correct response that way? And then I'm next try, I'm going to move on to a gestural, right? And if you don't get it, that's fine. We'll move back to that partial physical, but that is how we properly prompt bait with airless teaching, right? But that's why most of the time, if it's possible, we're going to use that least to most prompting um, so that the client has the most opportunity to independently respond. Great explanation. And yeah, you are going to have a staring contest there. Uh, and to be honest, I can equate it to being stuck in, in quicksand. Um, because as you continue to give those prompts, it's like you're moving around in quicksand, you continue to sink. And so what what that looks like is I'll present that SD and then I'll get a, I know. And I'm like, all right, if you know, tell me. I know, I know, Mr. Dan. Okay, so he's looking, <laughs> he's waiting me out for that right. prompt because he knows the prompt is coming. And then it gets to a point where we're running through mastered skills and I know he knows the response, but he's still so reliant on the prompt that he's still waiting me out. And so it's like, it it turns into a situation where as you continue to give those prompts, you just continue to sink into some quicksand, especially if your client is prompt dependent there. Now, what worked and didn't work for me in the prompting sequence was definitely something that I was doing at the beginning as a new behavior technician. And that was, I was failing to repeat the SD as I went up the prompting sequence. So I was using least to most appropriately, but I would present that SD at the beginning. Let's say for example, the SD of touch toes. And then I would go through the whole prompting sequence until I got to wherever the most intrusive prompt was and never repeating the SD. And that's an issue because you really need to be repeating that SD as you go up the prompting sequence because we really wanna associate the correct response with that SD. Now, what worked or didn't work for you in the prompting sequence? Yeah, I really like that example because I think we forget because we're so focused on like what comes next, like what do we need to do to prompt next, but we always need to give that verbal as well because we do need them to say, to associate like, oh, they're not just moving my hands in this direction. They're moving my hands in this direction (laughs) because they asked me to pick red, right? Um, So I really like that. Yeah, I definitely have done that before as well. I think one of the things that I've um, kind of learned along the way is when you do have a client who's prompt dependent, if you're able to, instead of using um, physical prompts um, or you're using prompts like verbal prompts, um, sometimes gesturing and then not making eye contact while you give those gestural prompts. So they realize they're just pointing at something. I might as well pick up whatever they're pointing at and then you can make a big deal out of it. And now you've just prompt baited from maybe a physical prompt that you are using to a gestural prompt. So knowing how to get creative with those gestural prompts so you can prompt bait appropriately um, and that the client is still learning without getting that extra prompting that they're really looking for. And that's definitely where differential reinforcement comes into play. And you outlined that perfectly. You're right. We're really waiting Uh, them out, waiting for them to respond appropriately without providing those prompts. Uh, So now let's go to our next uh, step here in the DTT, which is the response. Now the response is an observable and measurable behavior that is exhibited from the individual when the SD is given. What can the response be? Um, So the response can be correct. 
if it's given within five seconds of saying the SD, the response can be incorrect or non-existent, right? Both would be a minus on the iPad. Um, so you either have a plus because they responded within three to five seconds, or you have a minus because there was just no response or um, the response was incorrect. So what worked or, or didn't work for you when you were run when you were running data on the response? Yeah, so I think just making sure that you always have your iPad available. I think we get into, you know, especially when you are eventually doing some NET, maybe running around whatever environment you're in. Um, and sometimes you may forget the iPad on the table where you were doing VTT originally, and now you've moved on to some NET in the living room, right? Instead of in that area that you were talking about that you sit and that is typically for DTT, right? And maybe I've forgotten my iPad at the table. It's important for me to always have that with me so that as I am taking data on the response or needing to prompt appropriately, um, I'm able to do that immediately. So as I'm moving up that prompt hierarchy from least to most, I'm marking the correct response or the correct prompt that elicited the correct response. And I was going to say the same thing that actually is something that worked for me is to have that iPad available so I could immediately put positive or negative whenever I saw a correct or incorrect response. And then as soon as I hit negative, I could go through that prompting sequence. I could see where it was and I could tap the prompt that was used in that moment. Now that response is really important because it's data. It's the data that your supervising clinician will use to write the behavior therapy plan and also write the behavior intervention plan. So all of these responses are, are really important when you're putting the data into the iPad in that moment because it's more accurate compared to if you were to wait and then try to remember it. There is no way like you're Just running so many. Yeah, they're yeah. running so many targets in one moment during DTT that just trying to wait and be like, oh, I think it was a positive or I think it was a negative. You're going to get incorrect data there. Now, that fourth step is going to be the consequence. This will change and is really dependent on the individual's response. So as you had mentioned, Victoria, we were going to the correct and incorrect response. In terms of a correct response, we're immediately reinforcing with a stimulus reinforcer. So a preference assessment will be conducted before the DT trial, and it will have established what the individual will be receiving for a correct response. One of the most important things here is to make sure that you have reinforcement readily available. It needs to be right next to you. You need to have run that preference assessment at the beginning and always run preference assessments throughout your session. Now, what about an incorrect response? What are we looking, looking at there in the consequence? Yeah, so as far as the incorrect response and taking data, you're always marking the minus. Right. Um, and we want to make sure that we're using that least to most prompting and we're stopping at whatever prompt elicited the correct response. Right. So if I have to give a verbal prompt, I wait three to five seconds. Right. No response. That's when I move up to the gestural prompt. I'm seeing the SD with the gestural prompt. Now they got the correct response. I'm going to mark G for gestural, right? I'm not going to mark just V for verbal because it did require me to either model something or point to something um, for them to get the correct response. So I always want to make sure that I'm marking, like you said, the most intrusive prompt that was given. And yeah. I want to... And Sorry, Go ahead. <laughs> just getting back to that. So when you're doing something like error correction, because they got the incorrect response, you're going to present the SD up to three times. So maybe I prompt them, they get the correct response. I mix up the items very quickly, represent them. I'm, we're talking within like two, three seconds. You give that state the SD again, let them 
give them an opportunity three to five seconds to choose the correct answer. Say they got it wrong again. I'm going to continue this process up to three times or up until they get it correct. All right, maximum of three times. Now, if they get it correct, great with my prompt. Okay, they get it correct. I mix it up. I represent it. And now they get it correct again. Great job. I can move on to a maintenance or a distractor type trial. All right. And then once you present that maintenance or distractor trial, then you can come back to the original task you were just doing and present the SD. And our hope is that they're going to get an independent response and we can now mark this as trial two. So all of that initial mixing up, representing, prompting, mixing up, representing, prompting up to three times is all one trial. And I think that gets really confusing as a new technician yes. um, of like, oh, wait, but like I'm representing the materials and this is a different trial, but it's not right? You're doing it back to back to back so that the client has the best opportunity to get that independent response because you just prompted them the, um, about three seconds prior, right? So you're just looking for that correct response with the prompts and then hoping to represent them quickly, the materials quickly, so that they can then choose the correct response independently. And then we can move on to a distractor trial and then come back to that original task and hopefully present it one time they get the correct response, and now this is trial two, and I can mark a plus. But that distractor trial is necessary to be in between so that we can differentiate, okay, all this mixing up is one trial, distractor trial, all right, give them some confidence, right, because it's typically a maintenance trial, like they know how to do it, right, and then come back to the original task, and hopefully they can still get that independent response completely on their own without prompting. Great explanation. So just to summarize this, um, at this point, we're on step four. So the first step, remember, we're presenting that SD. Before we do that, we want to gain their attention. So make sure, making sure that they're attending. Then we're giving that SD. Could be whatever is written in that program instruction by your supervising clinician. Make sure you say that without the name. Then we're getting a response. We're looking at a correct response or an incorrect response. If it, it's a correct response and it's independent, we're giving that big reinforcer. If it's an incorrect response, as you had outlined beautifully, we're going to pick up the materials, represent the trial, and then go back all the way to the beginning. And then we're getting, we're waiting for that in that correct response. And then we're going to run that distractor trial in in the middle. That way, we're looking for that second trial there because we're really looking at getting that independent response. That's our goal here. We want to make sure that our client are, is gaining these skills in a manner where it's rapid, but it's also concise, efficient. And it's important that we're making sure that we come back around to represent that uh, that that trial again so we get that independent response. That was something that I wasn't doing as well when I had started. So what didn't work for me here was I remember going through it and I would present an SD and my client would engage in challenging or maladaptive behavior, most likely escape, crying behavior. And so I would launch into a high P sequence, a high probability sequence, getting my client to attend again, getting my client to respond. And then that would be a matter of 10 minutes and I'd move on to the next target instead of going back to the target before. So that target was pending. It just wasn't getting acquired. And so because of that 10 minutes, I had lost my train of thought and I was ready to go on to my next target. And my supervising clinician was like, wait, hold on. Your client engagement is not only are you enabling escape behavior here, but also you're not going back and working on the trial that you were just working on. So that trial is just staying there. We're not working on it at all. 
So one of the things that I had to do is having that iPad available, also what helped me here, is making sure that I had physical representations of what targets I were working on. So it'd give me an idea, even if it was just me writing down on a notebook piece of paper, the, the target and putting it down so I could look at that and be like, oh, yep, this is my next step, next step, next step, or just referencing back to the iPad. So it's important here for you guys to go back after whatever distractor has happened in between if you're getting an incorrect response and run that trial again, because we're looking for that correct response. Now, what worked or didn't work for you here? Yeah, so for me, when doing error correction, I was presenting it over too many times, right? We want to max this out at three, because what happens after three times, if you're getting it incorrect and somebody's prompting you after three times, we want to move on because our goal is not to frustrate the client. And that's what I was doing is I was frustrating my client, right? Because I'm like, oh, we got to get this correct. I don't want to move on on a prompt right? I don't want the last response to be a prompt that you need to get this correct. I want to make sure you have an opportunity to get an independent response, but they were just not not getting it at that point. And that's okay. We still just had some more learning to do, some more repetition to do. But at the time, being a newer technician, I was like, no, like I got to keep representing this. And then eventually what I see, I saw maladaptive behavior because they were not trying to sit here and do this 10 more times, right? So it was important for me to cap it at three times. If you're still getting an incorrect response, move on to something else and then come back and let's see where we're at and see if we can get the correct response independently. Hi, great explanation there. All right, let's go to our last step here. We have the inter-trial interval. Now, this is the final step in our DTT. It's a specific time period following a consequence that marks the end of one trial and awaiting start of the next trial. It's a relatively short period, so we're looking at seconds and it assists in the continuity of the DTT process. Now, this is quite clear, quite explicit. So I'm gonna jump directly to what worked or didn't work for you here. Yeah, so just making sure, like you've been talking about, is making sure your sessions are really planned out. If that's writing something down, if that's, if you're doing a bunch of different receptive ID type tasks, where it's between animals, colors, shapes, you maybe, I like, personally, if I'm using lots of cards, I'll get all of my card stacks together so that I know which one I'm going to present next, this one's next, this one's next. Okay, we don't want to do all 10 of the same pick red in a row, right? So maybe we'll do pick red from this card pile. We'll do show me the giraffe from this card pile. And then we'll say, where's the rectangle from this one? And so I'll have it physically set up next to me. So then I know, okay, we got through all three. Maybe we do some kind of maintenance. And now we get back into show me the red, right? Show me the giraffe, show me the square. Okay, so then it's physically yes. laid out so that I can repeat these trials in a manner that's not going to become boring to the client or elicit some kind of maladaptive behavior because I'm asking them to pick red 10 times in a row. Exactly. And this is actually one of the things that I was struggling at. I would have all of my materials laid out, but all of my materials looked very similar. So it's like the same color palette. And so my client knew, all right, trial one is going to look like trial two. It's going to look like trial three. And my supervising clinician had to tell me like, hey, 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 like mix it up. Make sure there's a variety as well. So you're not just working all on LRFFC. You're not looking at all VPMTSs. You're not matching for every single trial that you're working on or tacting or identifying for every single trial that you're working on. So mixing those up and making sure that not only you're running maintenance trials in between, but also that each of those trials look different so that during those inter-trial intervals, you're not seeing maladaptive or challenging behavior. And that's what I saw. 
a lot of the times when I would do task one, my client would say, oh, here we go. Dan has his cards out. <laughs> and then I, and then as soon as I would start to transition to task two, I get challenging and maladaptive behavior where my client would escape, try to remove himself from the table, um, would cry. And I was like, man, this, something's not going on. And something's wrong. What, what am I supposed to be doing? So my supervising clinician would have to say, put your cards on hold. And I want you to try new things for each trial that you're running. Uh, so yeah, we definitely don't want aversion to DTT. We want a DTT to be engaging. We want to make sure that your client knows that reinforcement is available for them. Yes. And I always challenge people like DTT, um, do your best to make it as engaging as possible. It most likely will not be as engaging as NET um, because it's a little bit more contrived, but do your best. One of the things that I did is um, I would go and get Easter eggs and I would put random things inside the Easter eggs so that when my client would open them up for reinforcement, we'd both be surprised as to what was in there. That was natural and engaging for me during reinforcement. Okay, so that is the five steps. Now, before I get onto some questions, I had just mentioned some uh, a pro tip for for you if you're working in the field, specifically doing DTT. What advice would you give to a new BTT in the field? Yeah, so I would just um, have them remember that at first you're going to be doing a lot of DTT, right? This is how you learn the client's programs. I know if you have one client doing one program, you go onto another client and say it's the same program, right, in the exact same way. You still may be running it differently due to different behaviors the client engages in while doing DTT or different things that you need to prompt with. Maybe one client um, has acquired skills a little bit quicker than the other clients. So there's different ways to do DTT amongst clients. So it's important to do a lot of DTT at first so you get to know how to run those programs with that specific client. And then eventually what's going to look like is incorporating some NET. And then so a really great balance session is going to be some pairing at the beginning, pairing throughout and pairing at the end. And then in between is going to be some DTT and NET, a good mixture. Great advice. And one of the things that I would give as a pro tip is talk to your supervising clinician if you are ever unsure, apprehensive, or nervous about running DTT. Remember that your supervising clinician will be out there on a weekly basis to supervise you, and they can model anything that you need. Um, to be honest, I wish I would have taken advantage of that more than I did. One of the things that I had focused on at the beginning was, this is my job, I need to be doing DTT, and then getting frustrated because I didn't know how to do it. And instead of just asking, hey, it's my supervising clinician, can you help me with this? So great advice here, Victoria. Let's get to our questions. All right, my turn, I'm in the hot seat. Which one is correct? A, technician gains eye contact or joint attention, then places one red and one blue card in front of the client. B, technician gains eye contact or joint attention, then places one red and one blue card in front of the client while stating their name. C, technician gains eye contact and joint attention, then places one red card and one blue card in front of the client while stating the SD. Or D, technician states SD while placing one red and one blue card in front of the client. So that one would be C, the technician gains eye contact or joint attention, then places one red and one blue card in front of the client while saying the SD. All the steps before were in the wrong order. Either the SD wasn't being stated, so the client just had one red and one blue card set in front of them. They're like, all right, what do I do with these? Uh, the other one, 
they were stating the client's name. We want to make sure that we do not state the client's name when we're working in DTT and presenting that SD. And then for the last one where we saw that was incorrect, the SD was placed first and then one red and blue card were placed after. So we want to make sure that we're doing that in order. That first step is going to be eye contact, joint attention, placing the material while stating the SD. Yes. Correct? Correct. Okay. Got it. All right. Last question here. True or false again? During a discrete trial training, the client responded incorrectly, but after a gestural prompt, the correct response was elicited. The technician should mark first a negative for the incorrect response and then a positive for the correct response following a gestural prompt. So this is going to be false. And the reason is because it would just be one trial and it would be a negative. You had to give a prompt and by giving the prompt, the client got the correct answer. That's the whole point of prompting is that the client gets the correct answer. So yeah, you're going to see a correct answer from the client, but it's because of the prompt. So it's still a negative. It's still one trial. Fantastic job. Uh, that brings us to the end of these questions. And it was an absolute pleasure again, during this podcast with you. It was a pleasure doing it with you as well, Dan. Thank you. Of course. Enjoy your fall weather. <laughs> Thank you. You enjoy your uh, extra summer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. See ya. Thank you for joining us for this special RBT mini series edition of the BT Focus podcast. We look forward to joining you next time as we continue journeying through the second edition RBT task list to help you elevate your practice and learn more about the science of applied behavior analysis.